History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 85, The Spartan War. Last time, we covered the battles and tribulations of Xenophon and the 10,000 Greek mercenaries remaining from Cyrus the Younger's army. They fought their way from Babylonia into the Armenian highlands and across the Pontic coast of Anatolia. When we left them, the Spartan general Carisophus had just set sail for Byzantium to investigate rumors of a Spartan fleet on the Sea of Marmara and seek out ships to carry the mercenaries back to Europe for the final leg of their journey. As he left the Greek city of Trapezos by sea, Xenophon led the bulk of the army further west by land to seek additional ships and rendezvous with Carisophus somewhere along the coast. They hired all of the available ships they could find and afford to carry the injured, sick, men over the age of 40, women, and children, either captive or long-standing servants, as well as their large haul of loot and baggage. This cohort would sail on to the next city while the shrunken army could move through hospitable territory without placing excessive burdens on the countryside. In a way, they borrowed the Persian tactic of employing a fleet to shadow the army and carry their supplies. 
So these ships went on to the next Greek city, Kerasos, and the land force caught up three days later with little trouble. Though hardly a great city by any standard, the markets and friendly countryside of Kerasos were larger than Trapizos, allowing the army to sell off most of their plunder and many of the people they had enslaved that spring. The sales were made by the officers from a central pool of loot, and the proceeds were distributed based on rank after they assembled the full army to get a headcount. From an initial figure of 13,700 mercenaries when they departed Issus the previous summer, and roughly 10,000 when they fled from Tissaphernes in autumn, the army was now just 8,600 in the spring of 400 BC. Most of their losses were attributed to disease, exhaustion, and frostbite. Portions of their profits were set aside for religious dedications at the Temple of Apollo at Delphi and his divine twin Artemis at Ephesus. Xenophon further sent some of his own share to Delphi to make a dedication in honor of his late friend Proxenus the Boeotian general who had recruited Xenophon in the first place and was executed in Babylon alongside the other mercenary commanders. From Kerasos, they had to continue on. They still hadn't heard any news from Kerasophis, and even this city's larger port could hardly finish the ships they needed to carry 9,000 people. The ships they had hired in Trapizos went ahead while Xenophon and the healthy troops proceeded into the territory of the Mosinoikians. Like so many of the fractious cultures they had already encountered, these people lived in heavily fortified towns. Now that they were on the coast, the locals relied on farming, fishing, and dolphin hunting for their livelihood rather than livestock. Their coastal settlements were also divided into two broad factions. When one of the mercenaries' trapeds and guides was sent as an emissary at the border, the eastern Mosaquinians warned that they would oppose the Greek advance if they attempted to cross their territory. So a small ship was hired at Carassos to send an embassy from the mercenary army over to the western faction and broker a deal. The mercenaries and the western Mosaquinians formed an alliance to invade at the same time and plunder the easterners in exchange for free passage through western territory. With only minor delays, this went well, and the Greeks continued to remark on all the strange things they encountered. Bizarre oddities like chestnuts and jars of rendered dolphin blubber. As Xenophon tells it, the Mosaquinians were the least civilized people they encountered on the whole journey, and remember, this is including the unconquered Cardukians. The Mosaquinians, according to Xenophon, danced with the severed heads of their enemies after battle, kept large stores of food dedicated to their dead ancestors, tattooed their backs with floral designs, took pride in well-fed children, and did horrific things like have sex and relieve themselves in public. The Western Mosaquinians did keep their end of the bargain, though. They and the tribes they had subjugated provided safe passage for the Greeks crossing their territory. 
On the far side of Mosaconia, a group called the Tiberenians also proved hospitable and provided gifts and provisions of their own accord, though some of the Greek commanders still wanted to pillage their settlements. The editor of one later manuscript inserts a helpful note at this point. It was now May of 400 BCE, and the army had marched 2,300 miles, or 3,400 kilometers, in their retreat from Kunaxa alone. That brought them to another Greek city known as Kotiora. They stayed near this city for a month and a half, hoping to hear from Karasophis all the while. It was a convenient place to stay because Kotiora was prosperous and bountiful, but the city was not as welcoming as its eastern Greek neighbors had been. The sick soldiers were not allowed to enter the city, and they would not open their markets to the army. Instead, the mercenaries had to go to local towns and estates individually to barter or raid for provisions during their stay, occasionally crossing out of Kotioran territory altogether and pillaging the region of Paphlagonia further west. But rumors began to circulate out of the port and over to Kotiora's mother city, Sinope, which still collected tribute from this colony. The Sinopeans sent an envoy named Hecatonimos to the mercenary army to get a lay of the land. The Sinopeans had heard in exaggerated fashion that Kotiora was under siege by Xenophon and his 8,000 companions. However, they had also heard stories circulating out of Trapezos and Kerasos of all of the adventures, and when it was clear that Xenophon had not invested Kotiora with a siege, Hecatonimos congratulated them on their achievements. But congratulations did come with a warning. The Sinopeans threatened to battle and punish the mercenaries if they were found to be plundering Sinopean colony cities. Throughout the back half of the Anabasis, Xenophon recounts many of his own speeches and conversations, sometimes genuine, but often is not clearly invented after the fact or embellished. At this point, though, it is pretty clear that he was getting tired of all of the opposition they had faced and was just being blunt in his response to the envoy. He explained all of the different receptions and conflicts they had experienced from Assyria to Kotiora, and said, As for the Kotiorans, whom you claim as your own, if we have taken anything belonging to them, they are at fault, for they did not act as hosts towards us, but closed their gates and would neither let us inside nor send a market outside. They claimed your governor gave these orders. As for your statement about people making their way into the city by force and being quartered there, we asked them to accept our sick into their houses, but when they refused to open the gate, we went in through the one gate that remained open to us. We have not used force except to house our sick in shelters, paying their own expenses and monitoring the gates so that our sick are not captured by your governor. The rest of us, as you see, are camping in the open, in our regular formation, prepared, if someone is kind, to return the same. Or if we are harmed, 
to respond in kind. As to the threat you uttered, that if you thought best you would enlist allies against us, we are quite ready to make war with you all if need be, for we have made war with other, larger forces by now. But suppose we think it's best to make common cause with the Paphlagonians, whom we here desire your city and your coastal fortresses. We would strive to prove ourselves as their friend by aiding them in their goal. Your colonists were rude and broke the sacred traditions of guests and hosts in our culture, forcing us to take measures for our own survival. We are hardened veterans who have experienced way worse than you, and we know more about your politics than you might expect. We don't want to fight, but if that's what you want, we will destroy you. Hecatonymos was visibly angered by this response, but recognized the validity in Xenophon's threat and conceded that if the mercenaries came to Sinope, they would host them amicably. Out of respect for their fellow Greeks, and in hopes of beginning this guest-host friendship before reaching the walls of Sinope itself, the envoys were invited to join the mercenary commanders the next day, and take part in planning the next leg of the journey. If any city between Cotiora and the Mediterranean would be able to provide ships to carry the full army, it was going to be Sinope. Xenophon asked if a journey by sea from Cotiora to its mother city would be possible, and if not, what resistance or welcome would they find in Paphlagonia? To his credit, Hecatonymos was honest with them. Sinope would prefer not to have to provide ships because it would be extremely burdensome, even for their well-stocked harbor. However, Paphlagonia would present a nearly impossible challenge. To enter the territory, they would have to go through narrow mountain passes, easily held by a small force of enemies, and then descend into open plains and cross wide rivers in a land dominated by some of the most skilled cavalry in the Persian Empire. Paphlagonia would mark the first time the mercenaries had to cross organized imperial territory since leaving Armenia, and to make matters worse, the full force of the Paphlagonian military was present. Their local ruler, called Korilas, had refused to send troops when Artaxerxes called on them just a few months earlier. You'll remember that a thousand Paphlagonian cavalry served in Cyrus the Younger's army. Ultimately, they settled on a plan. If Sinope could provide enough ships for everyone, then they would sail. If not, the whole healthy contingent would continue on foot, rather than risk Paphlagonia with diminished numbers. As he observed the camp, Xenophon claims he did contemplate another option. With all of these men, and the money and valuables they had accumulated over the last 18 months, he could found a new Greek colony on the Pontic coast. With an army of experienced veterans, who in the world could stand against them? How seriously he meant this, we can't say. But when some of the other commanders heard his musings, they went to the Sinopeans, who would absolutely oppose the idea, and used the anecdote to speed up 
recruiting Sinopean ships. In the end, the ships came, and the whole army prepared to sail for Sinope. But only after this rumor sparked a series of accusations, criticisms of leadership, and a near mutiny, because it wouldn't really be a story about Cyrus's Greek mercenaries without narrowly avoiding disaster, would it? As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Once in Sinope, Karasophis finally returned, arriving on a single Spartan trireme with news that the fleet could not ferry them across to Europe. It was busy, he explained, in the ongoing Spartan invasion of the Persian Empire. And it's at this point that I probably need to step back from Xenophon and the mercenaries for a minute to explain what the hell is going on. Think back on the last half-dozen episodes or so. Cyrus the Younger directly entreated the Spartan government to send Carasophis and a fleet under Samios, reinstate Clearchus, and support him in a war against Artaxerxes. Officially, the city of Sparta, in its role as leader of the Peloponnesian League and hegemon of all Greece, declared war against Artaxerxes II and his empire until such time that Cyrus the Younger became the uncontested king. Except Cyrus died, Clearchus was imprisoned and executed, and Kerasophus had been lost in the wilderness for almost a year. Samios alone was able to withdraw when the Persian fleet was mobilized, while his co-admiral, Tamos, fled back to his homeland in Egypt where he too got executed. When news of all of this reached Sparta in late 401, the city-state itself was still in an open, declared war against Persia. That hadn't changed, but many things in Sparta itself had. Recent decades saw great political upheavals in the Peloponnese. Sparta's dual monarchy, with two kings from the Europontid and Agiad lines ruling together, 
was often dominated by one king or the other, usually whoever was older and had more existing respect from the citizenry. In the years following the end of the Peloponnesian War, this diarchy was in flux. The Agiad king, another Pausanias, was accused and acquitted of treason for playing too nicely with Athens in the final years of the war. The accusation came from his co-ruler, Agis II, of the Eurypontid dynasty, supported by Lysander, the one-time Spartan admiral who became Cyrus the Younger's close friend and ally in the Ionian War. But Agis, or rather his wife, was not above repute. Possibly spurred by Posanius, a rumor circulated that the Agiad queen had an affair with the Athenian general Alcibiades during his brief exile in Sparta. Consequently, that meant Agis' heir would have been the bastard son of an Athenian. This was the situation when Ionian envoys arrived in Sparta in late 401 BCE. When word reached the Greek cities of western Anatolia that Cyrus was dead and Tissaphernes was coming back as satrap, they launched an open revolt. Messengers were sent to Sparta asking for aid in this effort to secede from the Persian Empire once again. Sparta was all too happy to answer the call, but with tensions in the monarchy and the shadow of the Peloponnesian War still hanging over them, the wider Spartan government was not prepared for an all-out campaign in the east. However, they could authorize some small campaigns. In Byzantium, a Spartan governor named Anaxibius was already present with a small fleet to govern the city. He had cooperated with Cyrus in years past, but new orders sent him to war with Persia specifically Pharnabazus II and his satrapy of Hellespontine Phrygia. From his base in Byzantium, Anaxibius had to sail along Pharnabazus's northern coast, which was dotted with Greek cities, but also other more loyal Persian subjects, such as the Bithynians and Thracian colonists. More popular than Tissaphernes, Pharnabazus also retained more loyal Greeks making Spartan raids into Phrygia more difficult. This was probably the context for the royal call to arms being ignored by Korolas over in Paphlagonia. Korolas's people had supported Cyrus in the civil war, and he refused to help Artaxerxes' loyalists in the new fight against Sparta. To make up for his struggles, Anaxibius began courting the mercenaries of Cyrus the Younger's army. When Carisophus arrived in Sinope, he came with an offer from the admiral. If the mercenaries could reach the Bosporus on their own, then Anaxibius could offer them reliable employment as mercenaries in Spartan service, instantaneously creating an army on the Asian side of the sea and on Pharnabazus's undefended eastern frontier. As they got nearer to home, the mercenaries were eager for an employer who could make up the difference between their ad hoc plunder from the last few months and the gargantuan riches promised but never received from Cyrus. 
As they prepared to enter a true war once again, it was deemed necessary to elect an overall commander than rely on the council of officers that had governed their progress during the retreat. Xenophon was the initial candidate, but deemed too Athenian to lead them in Spartan service. Ultimately, Carisophus received the promotion. That lasted all of a week. The Cenopeans agreed to ferry them on to Heraclea Pontica, the next major Greek city on the way toward Byzantium, and they set out. During a stopover on the way, the mercenaries divided into factions along the lines of their home cities. The Arcadians and Achaeans, about half of the surviving force, wanted to raid the coast of Bithynia with impunity and make as many stops as they could in order to build up their loot. Carisophus thought this was an unnecessary risk before they actually had a contract, but couldn't convince the other faction. So the Arcadians and Achaeans took command of some of the ships sent ahead from Heraclea and pirated their way along the coast independently, while Carisophus sailed to Heraclea and then proceeded on the coastal road with one quarter of the original troops. Xenophon wanted to accompany Carisophus, but was convinced to lead a third contingent, the final quarter, to raid through inland Bithynian and Asiatic Thracian territory. This went as well as could be predicted. Carisophus proceeded mostly unimpeded, while the Arcadian and Achaean contingent wound up besieged in their own camp by a group of Thracians, forcing Xenophon to divert and rescue them. With this mostly reunified army, they made their way with only minor skirmishes to Chrysopolis, better known in later history as Chalcedon, on the Asian side of the Bosporus. There, they joined Carisophus and his men to wait for the Spartan ships, which would either provide them with supplies, pay, and instructions, or take them back to Europe. They got neither. Two Spartan triremes arrived with a pittance, infuriating the mercenaries. It was a delaying tactic. After going through Heraclea, the mercenaries unwittingly crossed from the satrapy of Cappadocia into Hellespontine Phrygia, and all their raiding had caused the Bithynians to alert Pharnabazus to the presence of a large Greek army coming from the east. Pharnabazus was at war and prepared to respond in kind. He sent messengers to Anaxibius to figure out how this army got there, and offer a bribe if the Spartan would halt this campaign altogether. Once it became clear that this was the remnant of Cyrus's army, a new plan took shape. The bribe was still on the table, and Axibius just had to keep the mercenaries occupied long enough for Pharnabazus to arrive with his army. Forced to travel to a neighboring village in search of supplies, the Greeks were ambushed by Pharnabazus on the road. A large cavalry force tore through the Greek lines and forced the mercenaries to retreat, but only after losing 500 men in the process. 
Depending on which numbers you're following, this brought the 10,000 down to somewhere between 7,800 and 8,100 men. The Greeks returned to their camp near Chrysopolis to make plans for battle. The next day, Pharnabazus positioned himself on the far side of a shallow ravine, but positioned his cavalry out of sight, with only a small cadre of Bithynian horsemen in view of the Greek army, riding alongside the satraps' infantry. But Pharnabazus underestimated them. These Greeks had marched up so many mountains in the face of enemies just like this, that they descended and charged up the hill as they had dozens of times before. At first, the plan was working like a charm. The Greeks ascended, dispersing the infantry with apparent ease but not pursuing them, out of caution for the token cavalry force. As the full force of the Greeks crested the slope and saw the larger cavalry contingent coming into view, Pharnabazus probably expected them to retreat back down the hill, a perfect target to be slaughtered by a cavalry charge. Instead, the Greeks charged at him, prompting a Persian retreat. The former mercenaries of Cyrus had long since learned how to deal with Persian cavalry head-on do something incredibly stupid and surprise them. Still unaware of Anaxibius's betrayal, the mercenaries returned to Chrysopolis to negotiate a crossing with the Spartans. They attributed all of their problems to rival officers who had remained in Byzantium after traveling with Carisophus from Trapezus. When the Spartans returned to Byzantium with the mercenary complaints, Anaxibius gave his assent to ferry them across the Bosporus. He tried a new tactic once they were in Byzantium itself. He just reneged on the promise, and ordered the mercenaries to leave the city and return to Greece, raiding the Odrysian kingdom in Thrace for supplies because they would receive no support from Sparta. With that, the Spartan admiral proclaimed that they had one day to pack up and leave, after which any mercenaries caught inside the city walls would be sold into slavery. The rank and file were outraged, but their commanders were already seeking alternative options. Others, including Xenophon, were just ready to go home. Anaxibius was recalled to Sparta because his one-year term was up. As far as we know, the Spartans never found out that he had been bribed. On his way home, Anaxibius chanced to run into that year's Spartan governor for Byzantium, Aristarchus. Anaxibius wove discord in his wake. He passed on the order to enslave the mercenaries and a promise of payment from the satrap, while simultaneously entreating Xenophon to cross back to Asia with the army, and promises of allies who could provide ships for a homebound journey. When Aristarchus arrived, Xenophon was trying to do just this, and the new governor put a stop to it, immediately detaining mercenaries for enslavement. Xenophon and the remaining troops were forced to flee, but they had a lead on a new gig. While in Byzantium, some of their comrades had already decided not to go home, but enter into a contract with Suthes, 
a distant cousin of the current Odrysian dynasty in Thrace. Suthes was one of the Thracian king's local governors, but facing resistance to his rule near the Danube Delta. He hired Greek mercenaries into his service, and when Xenophon and the others were hounded out of Byzantium, Suthes took them as well. With a hardened force of 8,000 Greeks at his back, Suthes was able to secure his position in just two months during the summer of 400 BCE. The adventures of the 10,000 in Thrace fall outside of the history of Persia, for obvious reasons. But for future reference, they helped Suthes become so secure that he made a bid for the Odrysian throne, trying to become King Suthes II. While they were away, a new Spartan commander named Thibron was dispatched to the Ionian coast with 1,000 helots as peltasts, 4,000 Peloponnesian hoplites, and 300 Athenian cavalry hired as mercenaries. Thibron arrived in Ionia and recruited additional troops from Sparta's local allies. They surprised Magnesia on the Meander and took it through a brief siege but beyond that, they couldn't make much progress. Their forces were just not large enough in 400 to engage in open warfare with Persian forces commanded by Tissaphernes. In particular, the Persian cavalry was just too great to contend with in the field, so they had to settle for defensive tactics. Thibron patrolled the western coast of Anatolia, making landfall to defend the Ionian countryside and prevent Persian attempts to retake Ionian cities through attrition. Tissaphernes would raid outlying towns and farmland, only for Thibron's forces to run them off, going up and down the coast on both sides. Shortly after Thibron's arrival, Tissaphernes sent an embassy to Sparta, where they negotiated an armistice with the new Agiad king Agesilus to try and renegotiate the arrangement in Ionia. Agesilus agreed to a three-month truce, only for the arrangement to disintegrate immediately. Xenophon, with a deep personal enmity towards the Lydian satrap, blames it all on Tissaphernes, saying that he called for reinforcements from Artaxerxes immediately. Likely as not, Artaxerxes II himself refused the truce and called up a royal army to deploy in Anatolia of his own accord in order to cut off this new war in the west as fast as he could. To reinforce his own army, Thibron sent messengers to track down the mercenaries in Thrace. Given their previous experiences with Spartan generals offering to hire them, the remainder of the 10,000 were initially distrustful. As winter set in in Eastern Europe, they had to take off-season quarters in Thrace anyway, and negotiated with Thibron's representatives all through the cold months. Eventually, they did win the mercenaries over to their sincerity, but the deal wasn't really solidified until the Odrysian king ordered Suthes to send the mercenaries away he felt they gave his vassal too much military strength. In the end, who was right, because Suthes challenged him anyway. But for now, 
8,000-ish mercenaries entered into Spartan employment and sailed back to Asia, landing in Lampascus on the Hellespont in early spring of 399. From there, they marched unimpeded through Hellespontine Phrygia to the Greek city of Pergamon, where their new campaign could begin in earnest. Back in the day, when it was Athens rather than Sparta trying to peel their Greek subjects out of imperial control, Xerxes and Artaxerxes I had installed a number of exiles as power holders and city governors in Anatolia. The most famous was Thucydides, whose son still held sway in the region around Magnesia. But this was not so long ago that direct ties to Greece had been forgotten. That led Xenophon to the house of Hellas, an aged widow of Gongolus of Eretria, one of those exiled Greek governors. Hellas hosted Xenophon and some of the other officers, alerting them to the presence of a Persian army commanded by one Asadates in the small fort outside of the city. Hellas was apparently a native Aeolian, with family in Pergamon, and she recruited some of her younger cousins to act as guides. Word spread quickly, and 600 local volunteers joined the cause under the command of Hellas's son, another Gongolus. They found Asadati's men and camped around the fort, which was a wide guard tower. They launched their assault by night, and the initial push was easy. The Persians were caught off guard and abandoned their baggage train as they retreated inside the mud-brick walls. The gates were sturdy, and Xenophon reports that the walls themselves were eight bricks thick, forcing the Greeks into an all-night siege as the Persians showered them with arrows from above. At the top of the tower, Asadates lit a beacon fire, signaling that they were under attack and alerting nearby garrisons that Gondor called for aid. As the night wore on, the Greeks slowly carved away at the bricks, trying to breach the tower. They succeeded around dawn, and must have chiseled their way into some sort of kitchen, because the first mercenary to stick his leg through the opening got a roasting spit stabbed through his thigh as Persian defenders rushed to protect the breach. It was small, and a group of archers posted up on the other side, loosing a stream of arrows at any Greek who came near the opening. It actually turned out to be a very effective murder hole, because the Greeks abandoned that part of the tower entirely. By mid-morning, reinforcements arrived to relieve Asadates and give the Greeks a taste of the Persian Empire at its full capacity. Commanded by another Persian named Itamenes, the local garrisons came from across the empire. Heavy infantry to match the hoplites from Syria. Cavalry from Hyrcania in northern Iran. Light infantry from the local Phrygians. And still more cavalry of unidentified origin arrived on the plains. Now they had numerical parity with the Greeks, and the advantage of missile troops and mobile cavalry to pin them up against the wall of the tower as Asadati's men fired arrows down. The mercenaries tried to defend both themselves and the 200 prisoners, 
along with the baggage they had seized in their initial attack. Nearly half of the Greeks were wounded, so they were forced to retreat back toward Pergamon, suffering more losses along the way. They were rescued by the timely arrival of Procles, one of the Greek mercenaries with roots in the old exile community. He's the one who was descended from Demeritus, the exiled king of Sparta who advised Xerxes during the invasion of Greece. Apparently, Procles had returned to his hometown and recruited his own subjects to come aid the Spartan invasion. They all returned to Pergamon to make a new plan and ready themselves for the march south into Tissaphernes' territory. But with the full force of regional garrisons roused from their winter quarters earlier than expected, Asadates took command of Itamenes and his army to occupy the roads south of Pergamon. With few real options besides retreat or abandoning their contract with Sparta, and reinforcements from Procles' domain, the Greeks marched out by night quickly and charged without warning. It was a massive Persian defeat. The army holding the road was dispersed, and the Greeks took free reign of their encampment, capturing, among other things, the wife and children of Asadates. They could be used as either bargaining chips or sold into slavery. Xenophon does not say. Either already on his way or spurred by the early Persian mobilization, Thibron and the Spartan Ionian fleet sailed to join the mercenaries at Pergamon and form their forces into one single army. Xenophon, Kerasophus, and the others accepted Thibron as their general and employer before marching south, now just part, though a substantial part, of what we can truly identify as the Spartan army. This is also where Xenophon ends the Anabasis. Now part of a larger force once again, and off to a story he had already written in his Hellenica, he enumerated the full span of their travels. In the course of 18 months, they had traveled from Sardis to Canaxa to Pergamon, 215 days actively on the march, spanning 4,281 miles, or 6,336 kilometers. With Thibron present, Gongolus and Procles formally surrendered themselves and their cities to Sparta, joining the rebellion against Artaxerxes II in earnest. From there, they went south through the Troad, accepting surrender from Greek cities eager to revolt. They were ultimately held up in a siege of Larissa, a city just north of the island of Lesbos, loyal to the Persians and supplied by an expansive countryside. They remained invested against the city walls all through the winter, when the Spartan elders, the Ephors, sent commands to Thibron. His term as general in the east was coming to an end, and his replacement had a new campaign planned in the south, in Caria. So the Spartan army and its allies withdrew from Larissa and began walking south. But that is where we will pick up next time. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. 
You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.